Before we get to today's show, I want to ask you all for a big favor. Make sure you leave a rating or review. If you listen to the podcast, if you get value out of it, let us know. Leave a rating or review for two reasons. Number one, it helps other people find the show. It makes sure that we're climbing up the charts. And number two, it lets us know that we're doing something right. I read all the ratings and reviews. I want to know what you guys like. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter at RealJohnDavids and hashtag making it. You can talk to me. I want to know what you guys think. Now let's get to today's show. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. We are live with Pablo Srugo, an investor at Mistral VC. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, John. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for being here. I should also mention you're host of the Product Market Fit show. Great podcast. I'm loving your clips on LinkedIn. So we'll talk about that in a second. But why don't we just start off with a quick intro. Background, how you became an investor. Tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. So I, you know, I guess starting a little bit far back, I graduated out of uh, Carleton University in economics and, you know, went into it thinking, actually sure that I wanted to be a lawyer. I was one of those kids that like, since I was like 10 or 11 years old, I was like, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I didn't understand why people had such a, such a hard time figuring it out. And so I wanted to be a lawyer, you know, took a law class in first year and decided that it really wasn't for me at all. To be honest, I had like, you wanted to keep your like, soul. Yes. Well, I was, you know, I think I, I just had a wrong picture of it. You know, it felt like it was going to be like a suits-like adventure, you know, fighting, arguing in court, but felt like it was going to be a lot more boring, to be honest. And so kind of changed paths. And, and I had a friend of mine who was in a similar, his name is Lee Silverstone, and he uh, had gone in thinking he wanted to be a doctor and kind of halfway through, you know, his bachelor decided he didn't want to do that. So we started talking about entrepreneurship and starting business, you know, plans and writing business plans and starting ideas and, and whatnot. And did that, you know, on and off for for a while. And kind of as that's happening, I'm also I was a TA during during university, and I'd been a TA since like year two, second year, and I used that to fund my life really, like to pay for rent, all those sort of things. And in fourth year, maybe a couple of weeks before the semester started, I was told there was no more funding for undergraduate students, and so I was basically out of job, and decided to just you know start tutoring. So I started tutoring. I was tutoring during during fourth year. By the end of you know fourth year, everybody's figuring out where they're going to work. They're going to do a master's, whatever. Me and Lee, we don't really know what we're going to do, what we're going to start. And I decided, hey, why don't we expand on this tutoring thing and start kind of a, a tutoring business? Yeah, it's you know it's kind of a small idea, but at least it'll just get us into the game. So we launched my tutor in 2013, and that was like a tutoring marketplace, more of a services company, but you know it was at sales since day one, sort of thing. So so it was a it was a good first venture. We ended up selling that company. It was a small exit, but we were like. 21, maybe 22 at the time. And so it was good, like runway for us to, to just have the time and, and to, to work on something and think of something more ambitious. And so in 2014, we were pretty avid gym goers and the wearable craze was happening. They were like, you know, the pebble was super hot, crushing Kickstarter. You had all these different like move and Atlas wearables. I think they were called that were raising, you know, every month there would be another company raising half a million dollars on, on Kickstarter, or Indiegogo. And everybody wanted to go direct to consumer and kind of build a wearable for consumers that would help members automatically track their reps. And we, you know, I like to say like we, we had some smart insights and some stupid insights. And like you can guess at the outcome of the two, but the, you know, the, the smarter piece was realizing that direct consumer wasn't going to work, that even though Apple wasn't in the game yet, Samsung had just started, Motorola was in it, like some big brand was going to take over the direct consumer wearable because of the brand, because of distribution, because of all those things. But that we could go B2B and sell to gyms, 
and sell them an offering that would allow members to automatically track their workouts, be in a space that the biggest brands wouldn't compete with, and actually offer a better experience to end users because you'd be tracking not just the reps, but also the weight lifted and, and the exercises and the equipment being used. And so that's that was the idea for Gym Track. We went through 500 startups, Accelerator and SF. We ended up raising about $6 million to build the thing and then, you know, spending $6 million, you know, trying to build it. It was the craziest diminishing returns and we can get into that, but hardware is hard, I guess, is the net of it. So, you know, at some point we, we hired a new CEO. I started working with him for a couple of years. And then once he had things ready on lock, I decided it was time for me to leave. And this was like early 2018. I'm like, I'm going to go start something else. I had hired like 50 people, done 500 plus interviews. And I knew there was something in that recruiting space that that could be fixed or, or improved with software. And, you know, started chatting with a bunch of different people. I met this recruiter who, you know, was, was thinking about starting something on the side and, and maybe spinning it off and I would run it or whatever. And one day he's like, hey, you know, there's these guys that they run Mistral, a VC firm, and you might actually be a really good candidate. Do you want to at least chat with them? I'm like, sure. So I chatted with uh, with Code and with Bernie, the founders of Mistral, and it was just, you know, really good fit from the get-go. And, and I decided, you know what, let's try out this VC thing. I'd thought of it before we had VCs on our board. So we always wondered, you know, what it's like to be on the other side. And the opportunity was there and it just felt right. And so mid-2018, I joined them and uh, really haven't looked back. I spent the first 18 months in Ottawa. I spent a year in Montreal and now based out of Toronto, investing in, in seed stage startups across Canada. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. A lot, lot I want to unpack there. So let's go back to, um, to your time at GymTrack. So GymTrack, you founded, you were there, I mean, you, I guess, ran it for about four and a half years, which is a, a pretty good at bad. I mean, you, you, this was not a quick turnaround. You said you raised $6 million, you were in 500 startups, so I guess my first question there is, you raise $6 million, you burn through the $6 million, and you really don't accomplish much, or it didn't feel like you accomplished much. What, what was that like? I mean, that experience of burning through money, how many sleepless nights did, did you have? Were you, did you ever feel the hope and then it went up and down? Or did you just kind of feel doomed the whole time? What, what was that actually like for you? Oh, it was the craziest roller coaster, right? I think that's the net of it is like startups are about taking punches to the face and, and getting back up. The the straight lines are are very rare. Even for the companies that end up having a good outcome, it's still crazy ups and downs. And, you know, I can tell you, we went from as close as you can get to an acquisition and I won't get into too many details, but we're talking, you know, full contracts drafted, everything ready to go to the next week, laying off two thirds of our staff. Like and that, that like talk about going from a high of highs to a low of lows, right? You're, you're 24. You're looking at an acquisition that will make you, you know, a few million bucks. It wasn't huge, but it was still, you know, kind of a life changing event given the age that we were at. To you know, wow, this company's going to go bankrupt in five months if we don't if we don't make a big change here. And so th- there were really there were moments of both both extremes, like moments where wow, we're going to take over the world, like getting into 500 startups and. And closing like the the first time we closed, I think two or three million dollars, and thinking, wow, like we're actually going to have a shot building this. You know, I was talking about diminishing returns. Like you have to understand, it took one one of our first engineers was working with us like part time at the beginning, and within two months on part time hours, he was able to get one of the sensors. So we had a bunch of different sensors that went into the gym equipment. One of them was like the smart pin that would be calibrated to the machine and then count reps up and down and, and understand what weight was selected. And, you know, within two months of part-time work, he got it to about 70% accuracy. So I was like, okay, this is pretty promising. But going from there to the, the challenge is that if you're a consumer and you go and you work out and you do the math, you probably do about 300 reps in a workout. 
And reps are visually easy to count. Like nobody miscounts the reps. And so the intuition is like, this should be an easy thing. Now, if you have some AI powered wearable or whatever, that's trying to count those reps and it's 90% accurate, it's garbage because it's telling you nine out of 10, it's telling you 11 when you did 10, that's a really bad product. And yet it's 90% accurate. Like you compare that to, you know, we used to think about, we want to make the gym like, like the running experience. Like if you go running or, or cycling, you, you probably are using some sort of wearable to track your pace and all these sort of things. And it's, and you don't question its accuracy because you can't really count kilometers that easily. So if it's actually, if it says it's one kilometer, you assume it's one kilometer, maybe it was actually 0.9 or 1.1, you don't know. But with reps, you know. And so we're talking about getting to 99.7%. Like we used to think about it as you can make one mistake per workout. That's 299 out of 300. That's a pretty high bar across many exercises, many body types. And so that's where we just, the diminishing returns were crazy where, you know, you have 30 people, mainly engineers working on this thing and, you know, getting you from 80% to 81% and like 81 to 81 and a half percent. And so it just, you're still so far. That's right. That's right. So at some point it was like writings on the wall. We're not going to get to where we need to get to and we need to just change course. Yeah, I kind of summed that up. So I I had a similar experience years ago in a startup that I I was running. And so my version of that briefly was we had to get search right. So within our product, one of the features was search. And the problem is if people, if high paying enterprise clients are going to do like three, four, five searches in a day, and two of of the five are just presenting them with crazy bad results, it's a terrible product. And you could say, oh yeah, but but most of the searches are presenting them with good results. Yeah, but they're going to remember the one search that was totally off they're going to say this is a piece of garbage. So I think one of the big takeaways there, and maybe you, you use this now in, in your investing side, is that you, know, you can deal with market risk and customer risk. And you, know, you have a podcast called Product Market Fit. Tech risk is something that I think a lot of people overlook. They have this wonderful idea and they think, oh, wouldn't it be cool if this was possible or if that was possible? That's probably the hardest problem to solve if it's a technology that, that, that doesn't exist yet and you're the one to, to develop it. Because the technology risk is just so massive and so unknown. And it's hard to pivot also. You've got 2 million lines of code. Great. You want to go fix that now? So I feel like technology risk is something that, that a lot of people overlook. Yeah, I think it's totally true. And and to an extent, like because we focus so much on software, you kind of assume you know if it's software, anything can be done. And it's different levels of how hard it is. And that's you know not not always true. But the challenge with the tech risk, like, you know, if you look at it from a gym track perspective is if you go far out enough, then of course the idea is great and everybody wants to buy it, but it's because, you know, it's also not something that can be built. Like, wouldn't it be great if you walked in the gym and everything was tracked? Yes, it would be great, but you know, it's not there because it's so hard to build. And, and so, yeah, so you can definitely get caught up in that, but it's funny, you know, with gym track, like every six months, somebody will, will hit me up saying, Hey, I'm starting this company. It sounds like a lot like gym track. And we chat about what happened. And and I'm honestly sure at some point, you know, the tech and, and the person will be right and, and it'll get figured out. Yeah. And then without getting into the weeds, because I know you probably can't share too much, you said that you were very close to an acquisition and then it fell through. What was the reason that, that it fell through? It, it ultimately was a kind of misalignment on where the, the product really was. And the challenge was that that didn't come out until super late in the negotiations, like, you know, that could have been dealt with way before there was even a term sheet, but we're talking about full documents drafted with lawyers and money spent and, and employment contracts and all this stuff figured out. And then last minute it was like, yeah, no, we're actually not going to do this. <laughs> so 
<laughs> I mean, I asked oh, my lawyer, I said, I asked my lawyer, I'm like, how many, because I was getting so excited, right? Like you get so close to it, you start thinking about what that world's going to be like. And I asked him like, how often does a deal get this far? Before it was kind of, as it was happening, I said, what are the odds that this comes through? And he's like, well, deals that get this far, honestly, I would say 99% of them close. Well, we're the 1%. Yeah. I saw, I saw an awesome tweet that kind of encapsulates what you're saying. At 10 o'clock in the morning, an entrepreneur Google searches jobs available just in case something goes wrong. And then at 2 p.m., they're Google searching private jet prices, you know, just, just in case something goes right. That's right. So there's, That's there's right. highs and there's lows and there's a lot of in-betweens. So let's fast forward to, uh, to, to Mistral. So, I mean, you said you met the founders and you decided that investing you know, was interesting and I guess it was a, a fit with the people. But I'm guessing it's a very different job. How did you change your mindset from you're the guy building the company and like thinking of the ideas to all of a sudden you're totally hands off just evaluating other people? There was a, an interesting transition because you know I was I was the founder of Jim Track and at first Lee and I we had this co CEO structure and he was kind of outward facing and I was inward facing and then we shifted a little bit where I was COO and then when we hired the new CEO Lee ended up leaving and starting something else. And so I worked you know, kind of with the CEO. And, and so I was already not like the person making all the decisions. So there was a little bit of that transition. And then moving over to to the VC side, I do think like at the end of the day, even though early stage investing, like the, the VC side of things and, and the founder side of things, there's a lot of, it is related, obviously. There's definitely personalities that aren't like, there's a lot of VCs that would make really bad founders. And a lot of founders that would make really bad VCs. And I remember speaking with a founder who was like, you know, I'm having trouble letting go. He was still a founder, but he was hiring more and more people and VPs and stuff. And he's like, I, I'm just hands in all the time. Like I'm in this meeting and I'm driving it and I should let my VP sales do it, but I just can't. I was just never that person. Like I didn't, I just never had a real problem, even while I was at Gym Track, delegating and and kind of being more hands off. In fact, I kind of like it. So I, I think that that it, you know, even though there was some kind of getting used to. It wasn't a huge deal for me because, because it was it was somewhat natural to be honest, and and I like you know I, I quickly realized that I would it, it takes a while to get there right, but ultimately, you know you become the lead within your firm of let's say five or eight different startups, and you're working with five or eight different CEOs, and you're working through them. Like at the end of the day, you're not the one doing the things, you're not the one making the final decisions, but you're assigning work to all of them. You understand what's going on, and you influence it to, to different extents and that's been awesome. Like that, that is, and, and that's something that is good for some people and, and just awful feeling for, for others. Right. So it really depends on who you are. And what kind of companies are interesting you right now? What, what, what are you looking for right now? So we're, you know, historically have invested more in enterprise software, B2B SaaS, but we invest really across Canada at seed, little pre-seed, some post-seed as well across the board. Like how much is seed these days? Places. How much is the seed round these days? Yeah. Well, anywhere between, I just saw somebody saying they're raising a $10 million seed round, right? But that's, that's, I think, <laughs> that's the why I'm asking. Which is luckily, yeah, no, I, I think an appropriately sized seed round is like anywhere between two to four million <clears throat> in a pre-seed round, anywhere between half a million to two million sort of thing. That's kind of what I think that's, but definitely $5 million seed rounds are not that uncommon. So... So we, so we really invest across the board, like across verticals, you know, I'm willing to do marketplaces, consumer. The biggest thing is just a deep, deep conviction in the founders, like real belief in the founders that, that they know what they're doing and that, that we can work with them. 
And the second piece is, is belief in the idea itself. Like just a really exciting idea that I think that I can get to deep conviction on how much pull there's going to be for it. The rest is, is less important to me. Like the business model style or vertical they're in is, is secondary. We're more generalist seed VC and really understand seed stage. So a lot of people that listen to this podcast are, are starting out or maybe onto their next, onto their, onto their second venture. What are some red flags? Like what are two or three things that you can see and pinpoint within the first five minutes of talking to somebody that's like, okay, this guy or this girl doesn't get it and they don't know they don't get it yet, but they'll, but, but they'll find it out and here's why. I think anytime that there's, there's too much focus on, on building and less so on understanding is, is one of the biggest things. Like I want to see somebody who is many layers deep on understanding their customer, why their customer thinks the way they do, why they're buying the product in the first place. And that's, that's where things get really interesting is where I can tell that whether it was through like domain experience or because they explicitly went out and did like real customer discovery, but they have a very clear understanding of the psychology of their customer and what exactly is going on and why their product is just such a good fit for the customer type that they're going after versus somebody who's, you know, on the other extreme, just building features and building features and and things like the next feature is the thing that's going to, you know, help the company take off. But, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, like the reality is, let's say I meet with 250 founders in, in a year and I personally will invest, let's say in three of them, the firm as a whole will invest in six. I have to say no 99% of the time. And yeah, there's probably 150 or so where it's like, I have a good reason for saying no, whether, you know, I don't believe in the founder or I don't believe in the idea, just something very black and white market is too small, et cetera, et cetera. But there are a lot like out of the three that I invest, there's probably like 50 that I, you know, pass on, I can't tell you exactly why. It's just like, you know, the reality is when you have to only say say yes to three out of 250, there's going to be a lot of them that are some gray zone of, I'm not sure exactly why, but I just can't get over the line. And so I, I just have to pass. That's interesting. Yeah, especially when, when the numbers, and I'm sure you know, over time they'll get even bigger. You say no, you know, if something is a nine or a 10, you say no because you're waiting for that 11. And, and it's, it's just a matter of like, if, if there's enough really, really great founders out there, the cream rises to, to the top. That's right. So where, um, so if we look at a couple companies that you're investing in, anything you can speak to right now that we can kind of dig into? Yeah, maybe we can dig into, uh, there's a company called Curbo that I'm really close to here in Toronto. They're a car subscription company. So basically let's, it, it allows people to, to rent a car by the month and it's your own car. And it's basically, if you want your own car with the least commitment possible, that's where Curbo comes in. They launched kind of early last year, and they've just really been been scaling since since they won really really fast. It's car rental, but it's car subscription. That's how, that's how they car subscriptions. Themselves. Yeah, that's right. It's car subscriptions. Okay, so this is actually an awesome, and we didn't we didn't talk about this ahead of time, so this is all new to me. But okay, so I'll just ask you a bunch of questions. Okay, so when, when someone comes to you with an idea like this, for in my mind, having I didn't know the company, I'm going to say, okay, well, how is this different from a car rental company? So what what's the answer there? So it was really interesting. I mean, I think the first thing that, that we have to talk about is Apoor, who's, who's the founder of this company. So Apoor's pretty young, let's call it, he's around 30 years old, and he started a couple companies. The first one was called Brain Station, which was one of the first coding boot camps in Toronto that was acquired. And then he, he moved to Miami, met another, met his future co-founder, and they started a company called Vi.car, 
which is a car subscription company in Brazil. And they scaled that company to about 3,000 cars, three, 4,000 cars before COVID came. And, you know, then then after COVID, kind of a poor would travel back and forth. So he had to stay in Toronto. And and obviously the company took a hit, just like Hertz did, just like a lot of the rental companies. It's it's kind of bounced back since. But so then Apoor decided to, to bring the same idea to Canada and to the United States. So that was a huge part of it. I mean, I think without any of that, I might just not have, have engaged. But this person... And you could really tell every time you talk to him, it's like, it's like layers on an onion, right? Like the, the more questions you have, the deeper he can get on why this model makes sense. And we spoke a lot about, okay, the rental companies and the OEMs and why they either can't or won't do this, right? And so the, the thesis on the rental companies is that they, you know, they're set up for more than anything, like the tourists. So they have physical ro- locations that are, you know, relatively expensive by airports or in like central, like downtown, like convenient places to get to spread out across the city. And a lot of it is somebody that wants a car by the day, that car that wants a car for the weekend, a week, it starts to get really, really expensive as you get to a month or like two months or whatever. And, and it's not clear that that's an area that they need to play into or that they, that they're best suited to play into. So that was kind of the, 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 the thinking on why there is, and there has been white space in, if you think about a lease starting at like two or three years plus, and you kind of think about car rentals as a month or less is kind of their sweet spot. And there's this white space in between. Mm-hmm. So the, the idea is that you could rent a car from one to four months, and and that's something that you wouldn't do from a Hertz or, or a budget. And obviously, you're not going to get a, you know, a 36-month lease because you, you don't need a car for that long. So what makes the unit economics work here that they wouldn't work with a car rental company? Or, or would they, but that car rental company just, just wouldn't think to do it? Yeah, the, the rental company you know, might do it, but they're not, I don't think, best suited to do it. I mean, if you optimize for, I think you at the end have to optimize for something, right? And if you optimize for this kind of model, a subscription that lasts many, many months, what you're going to do is you're going to have these facilities that are kind of the cheapest facilities you can have. And you're going to have everything be as digitized as possible. And, and that's what Kerbal really has become. Now, the interesting thing is this model is not 100% new. Like, So if you look at Europe, there are companies, there's one in Spain, there's one in, in England, and I think some other countries, and even in the Middle East as well, where this is already happening. And so to an extent, we're just bringing a model that works elsewhere to Canada into the United States. And, and this is also part of the story, which I'll mention. There was a company in 2017 called Fair.com without an E because there's another fair with an E that did this exact same thing in, in the US. And it's it's pretty insane. But you know, because you can read that in a many in many different ways. The net of it is they raised like I think two billion dollars and they just sold for like 20 million. So what yes. happened there? Right. Now here's the crazy thing the guy that started that company is getting worse and worse, Pablo. <laughs> right. So the guy that started that company started another company to do the exact same thing. And he's doing the exact same thing and he's he's funded as well. So what happened? Well what happened was like if you are the first, that, that was one of the first companies to start this model. Started at the same time as the poor started Vi.car in, in Brazil. And if you don't know much about the car industry, right? And you're like a tech person and you start a company, like, what do you want to do? Well, what you want to do, especially back like 2017, like growth at all costs was, was pretty much the norm. Well, you want to grow at all costs. So you launch this thing. It really takes off. You have insane demand. And you can see their YouTube videos had millions and millions and millions of views. And you get crazy pull. What you want to do is you want to service everybody. And you want to just raise as much money and service, raise as much money and service. 
And when you do that with software, like your worst case scenario is you deploy code that isn't like really up to par. And all of a sudden you need more engineers than you otherwise would. And you have to like refactor some stuff down the road and whatever. It's manageable. When you do that with cars, you lose cars. And you are in a position where literally you have fraud, you have cars that get stolen, you have cars that get ditched because there's too many parking tickets. And you don't even know where they are because you actually haven't operationalized your business. This business requires operational excellence much more than an 80% gross margin SaaS business does. And that's the like skill. And you can't really fake it with just raising more money, raising more money. Like you might, you know, some, you might fund some crazy marketing campaign, then you get figured out down the road. You can't just figure this out down the road. You got to figure it out right away. And if you have a bad model to start, more money doesn't fix it. So this company got into that position. SoftBank came in. That was like one of the last, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And they saw after they invested how messy it all was, they get in there. And as they're starting to fix this, COVID comes. And COVID is a huge issue for all the car companies, even the ones that are now going to be, again, successful like Hertz and so on. Because all of a sudden you get all these returns, like for this kind of company, you got all these returns right away. And you're not set up to manage that. And you can't put cars back out because nobody's renting. So it just took too many punches to the face. Now, you can read that in many ways. You say, okay, this business is dead. It's never going to work. I choose to read that a different way, which is like, this business needs to be run the right way. And the opportunity is, as a result of this, there's this huge white space in the US where normally it wouldn't be. Normally, these models get started in the US, they work in the US, and then they get adopted in Canada or Europe or whatever. Not the case here. And yet the demand is there. Like the demand is through the roof. You, you, if you have a car, it goes out. Because yeah. there's a lot of people in this space who want cars for many months, but not two years. And, and the car rentals just don't really work. Are these guys playing nice with the manufacturers? Because I know in the car rental industry, a big piece of it is your fleet. And you can have you know hundreds or thousands of cars, but a lot of them you're not paying for up front because you're getting good deals on them. You're getting the good leasing terms. Is this a real cash suck because you got to buy the cars? Or, or do they have good terms with, with the manufacturers? It, it, it kind of like, it is very capital intensive. There's no doubt about it. Very similar to the car rental companies. And yes, they deal directly with, with OEMs and use that to, to get better terms. Like that, that side of the business is very much, it's very similar to a car rental business. Yeah, this is really interesting. I mean, it's, it's so interesting to see that you have a model. I mean, a, a very similar model has been around for literally decades, car rentals, but you change the model, you infuse technology and you target a different market. And all of a sudden you've got a billion dollar opportunity. So this is pretty cool. And so one final question on this, what, what's a good exit here? I mean, as a VC, you come into it, Here's the business. It's a car rental market. It's a, it's a car subscription marketplace. Where, where do you see this going as a big success for you? I mean, there's a lot like, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. Like we, we have this discussion internally a lot, like how much do we care about planning out an exit, right? You invested seed and in a sense, you kind of think to yourself, look, if, if a company can really scale, I mean, there's companies that are better positioned to exit and others that are worse. I get that. But at the end of the day, if a company can really scale and can really drive volume, something really good is going to happen and someone's going to buy it. So you can, you know, kind of speculate about it. Well, could a car rental buy it, a company buy it? Yes. Could an OEM buy it? Maybe, but, but less likely. Could it be a standalone company? You know, that's where I think, yes, that's where I think there is a category here where think about like the different use cases, right? Like you think about, for example, new immigrants, right? So you come into a country, all of a sudden, you don't know exactly where you're going to live. You don't know exactly where you're going to work. And you don't even know if you're going to need a car, but you know that right now you need a car as you go to interviews, as you look for places, as you drive the kids to school. Maybe in the future, you live in a place where your kids walk to school and you take the bus to work. You don't know that. So like this makes perfect sense. 
you're somebody who lives downtown and you just got a job that requires you to commute, but you don't know if you want to buy a car yet because you're not sure if you'll get fired from the job or if you'll like the job and stay. So this makes perfect sense. There's kind of a bunch of these of these pieces. And so I think there's a real category to be built here where, where it can be a standalone company and it doesn't necessarily kind of need to be tucked into something else. But I think there's there's kind of paths. There's always paths along the way. Yeah. And as you said that, I was thinking, I mean, it plays into the Airbnb culture of people going and living in Portugal for two months, and then they go to Miami for three months. And so this could actually be acquired by, by Airbnb potentially, because it, it complements the the kind of cadence of the, of that market. That's right. That's right. It plays into a lot like the remote, world, remote work trend and, and the nomad trend and so on. Yeah. That's really cool. So... How long does it take you, a couple like uh, insider VC questions, how long does it take you to come to conviction on this kind of investment? So you walk in, founder immediately has massive credibility, idea is interesting, it's been tried before with varying success. Is this an idea that, or is this an investment that is hard for you to get to? Or was this like a right away, yup, I'm doing it? I have to admit, this one was a little tricky because of so because it's it's not like a pure play software, right? And and the margins are not as a result pure play software. And so, you know, I remember, but but I happened to have met him really early. Like I met a poor in the the month that he started his company, sort of thing, just by coincidence. And so at that point, he wasn't really raising, and and so we had a chat, and I was like, okay, that's kind of compelling in the sense that, and this is what I get to is like one of the key pieces besides really believing in the founder is having a very kind of visceral feeling for, are people going to buy this thing? And and am I the person to bet on that? Like, there's a lot of things that people might buy and I'm just, I'm just not the one that's going to be sure of it. But early on when the revenue is either zero or very small, you can't like your late stage VC, you're like, are people going to buy it? Well, people are buying it. And it's more about a bunch of other things, right? And, and you have so many data and so many people you can call and understand why they're buying it. Early on, you just don't have that. Even if you, if you have some revenue, it's very, very small. And even if you could call five customers, you know, are they representative of a larger sample and so on? Here, it was just very clear to me to think, look, there's 4 million leases in the US per year. Like how many of those people would have instead opted for maybe a slightly more expensive, but much, much less commitment option? And how many people didn't get a lease because the commitment was too high? It's probably a lot of people. And if you think about $1,000 a month, it doesn't take that many cars. Like we're not talking about millions. It takes 10,000 cars to get to very interesting top line numbers and be like a meaningful size that I could just really wrap my head around and say, yeah, a lot of people are going to pass on this because they'll be like, well, car rental companies should do it. Well, the gross margins are not SaaS and all these sort of things. And so they'll, they'll dismiss it. But at the end of the day, you have a business that's probably going to have a lot of pull and a clear path to crazy scale. That's interesting with a founder that knows what he's doing hundred percent. And I, and I have really deep conviction. So when I got to that point, that's when I got really excited. But it took a few conversations, frankly, because of the first things. Like my first gut reaction was, okay, car rental company should do this. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't they do this? Oh, OEMs. OEMs tried to do it and didn't have the business model. They actually, almost all of them tried to do it. None of them could really do it. They all closed it for a bunch of different reasons, right? So learning that, learning about fair.com, learning about all these things, and then wrapping my head around the gross margin side of it and saying, you know, there's a lot of companies out there that don't have 80% gross margins and are worth billions of dollars. Of so once I got through that, I was like, okay, you know what, let's do it. <laughs> We're we're all spoiled in the software. I mean, I talk to a lot of folks who are outside of software and real estate and you know ma- manufacturing e-commerce, and you know I tell them, oh yeah, I got a business eighty percent gross margins, and they say like, you know, you are so in the you're you're in the minority. Most companies do just fine with like seventy or sixty percent margins. So we're, right. we're we're spoiled there. That's right, one hundred percent. 
So a couple more questions about, about being an MVC. When, when you're investing at this stage, as you said, you're not thinking about the exit. How long do you intend to stay in this kind of company for? Will you, will you kind of ideally ride it with each round? Or is there a certain point at which you say, okay, we, we're, we're going to exit, we're, we're going to sell our shares? The going in idea is, is that we'll ride it to the end. And we do invest, and there's many examples where we, you know, we typically invest our first check, a meaningful amount into the second check, and then we'll do like pro rata thereafter. And sometimes, yeah. And so that's the plan. Now, sometimes it doesn't necessarily play out that way, but that's the plan going into it is that, you know, we have a 10-year fund and we're doing investments in the first three years. So anything between seven to 10 years is is likely how long we'll stay with, especially the more successful companies because they tend to be the ones that last longest. Yeah. What do you think as a VC now you're most surprised by where as a founder, you don't have exposure? Obviously, you're not, you're not around the tables, you know, as VCs have their, their meetings. What do you learn? What have you learned that you never would have known as a founder? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. You know, there's a few different things that come to mind. One of the, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately is, is kind of the, the valuation piece, right? And so as, as a founder, and I don't have like a full answer to it, right? Because as a founder, and frankly, I used to think this way, at least early on, I think is a little naive was, you know, money's money. And like every single VC is going to pitch me value add because like they have to. And, and if they didn't, they would just say, my money's the same as everybody else's. And that's not a really good sales pitch. So they're going to pitch me value add. But from my perspective, money's money. And if this person's offering me money at 20% more than this person, like, you know, that's better. And so from that perspective, it's just like, get the valuation as high as possible. Obviously, as a VC, like this is, and this is the one thing somebody else asked me, like, what do you, what do you care about in a term sheet? And I'm like, I actually only really care about one thing, and it's valuation. It's the only term that's truly zero sum. Everything else, like board seed, vetoes, all this other control stuff. Like at the end of the day, if we have a really good relationship, we have trust. Obviously, that stuff's in there; it's pretty standard. But if we have a good relationship and there's trust, I'll probably get pro rata anyways because you want me to invest. I'll probably, you know, whether I'm on the board or not on the board, you'll probably listen to what I say to the extent that it makes sense and it's data-driven and so on, because why wouldn't you? But valuation is truly zero sum. <laughs> and so that's the one like battle item there. Now, from our perspective, I think about it like, you know, I can't really be paying 30, 50, you know, $30 million for, for a seed stage company. And I don't think it's a good risk reward for me to look at it and say, you know, I've been in a company that's like pre-revenue or very, very close to it. And it's a billion dollar outcome. And so I was right. Let's just say I, I put in money and things, a billion dollar outcome. And so I was right. I made a really good bet. I suffered like 50% dilution. So I'm getting like maybe a 13 X on it. If I invested at 30 million posts and suffered 50% dilution, like, is that a good risk reward? Like that I bet and I was so right. And that's what I, and that's what I get out of it. It doesn't even return my fund. Probably not. And so like, that's the, that's the flip side to it that I don't know if founders do understand, some founders get it, some founders don't get it, and some founders that do get it don't care, and, and maybe that's fine, because <laughs> at the end of the yeah. day, like, they're fighting for their side, which is get the biggest, you know, get, get the valuation as high as possible. But there are many founders, and we've had many, like, repeat founders who price it things that very, like, normally, like, not aggressively, and, or, or they, they don't try to optimize for every last dollar, because for them, it's, A, it's like, there's a speed part to it, there's a time piece, and then there's, like, who I want to work with, and, like, as long as I'm working with people that are going to add value and, and just be good people to work with. It, and there is something to that. Like maybe my last thought on it is if you think about how you bring in co-founders, you don't think about what's the less, the least equity I could give my co-founder or who's going to take the least right. equity as a co-founder. You think who's the best co-founder 
And then what's a fair offer where we can both be like aligned and, and happy and whatever. I'm not going to give them at all, but you know, that's how you think about it. Well, VC yeah. has some, it's not the exact same because we're not in it every day, all day, but we end up owning like a meaningful percentage of your company and we do end up being partners in it. So you have to ask yourself, like, is it the right thing to just say, how can I give the least possible to the next VC versus how can I get the best VC within something that's reasonable and fair? And, you know, I'm not sure it's self-serving argument. I get it. Yeah. No, that, that's interesting. So two points there. Focusing on the terms, and I, I wasn't quite sure which side you fell on there, but focusing on terms, not just valuations, is, is I think really important because a lot of founders, and there are great threads about this on Twitter and, t- and tons of stuff online, but a lot of founders, as you said, they'll look just at the valuation, but you know, there's pref shares, there's liquidation preference, there's all kinds of terms in there that will change that top line number and dilute it, or 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 maybe work the other way, actually increase it. So th- that's a really important thing, and then also. You kind of pointed to it, and it wasn't until I did this that I really started to do well, which is that founders should understand that being a VC is a business, and their business is not your business. It doesn't mean they're working against you. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means that they have certain things that they have to achieve for it to be worth their while, even in the best case outcome. As the example you gave, like if I take massive risk and I'm right about everything, and my return is like what I could have gotten in the S&P 500 over 10 years, why did I just do that? Or, or you know, if it's a bit of a premium. So, like, I once had a VC say to me, uh, I won't say his name because everyone knows him, but he said to me, like, John, you know, what you're proposing to me, if I did this, my best case is a 10x return. I'm not interested if I can't get a 100x return. And, and I get it because, you know, 99% of the investments that his firm makes are going to zero. So, that, you know, I, I think it would help founders to really take an, an understanding of what the VC business is so, so they can at least understand where the other side is coming from. Yeah, that's right. And that's, I often have told founders, I'm like, look, at the end of the day, I've, I just had this discussion last week. I'm like, I think they were pre-revenue, really, really exciting idea raising at like 30 because they'd gotten out of YC and people were, and angels were writing, you know, saves at 25. So it's like, okay, we're now raising at 30 sort of thing. And I'm like, look, honestly, if you can get that price, get it. Like, I, I can't tell you don't get it. But just so you understand where I'm coming from and, and you don't think I'm just cheap, like, here's like the math I have to look at. And he was like, you know what? Like, that makes a lot of sense. I get it. But, you know, at the end of the day, again, I, I know it's self-serving and, and, I, and I'm not sure exactly what I would be doing on the other side. I do think there's a bar, like there's thresholds. Like if, if, if I think we're not going to work well together, forget it, right? But there's probably, you know, a few people that I think are going to be value add. They're all pitching value add and that it seems like we're going to work well together. Well, then out of those, obviously, whoever is offering me the better terms, the better value and so on, it's a big point of consideration. And I think that's just, that's reality. Yeah. The, the VC business also is, it's the outlier business because it's the companies that are outliers that actually get the investments. And it's the companies that are outliers that pay back the entire fund. It's, it's sort of like the worst place to be is right in the middle. If you check all the boxes, you sort of are maybe not doing everything right. It's the companies that kind of make you go like, well, that, that's crazy. And then they actually work. And so it's interesting. Do you... So in your fund, I'm guessing you like, do you adhere to typical economics? Like you, when you make an investment, do you think to yourself, okay, like nine out of 10 of these aren't going to work or, or do you hope that they're all going to work? How do you, how do you approach it? No, definitely. We, we know that at the end of the day, and we just see it in our previous funds and in all the data, it's like, no matter what you do, you end up with power law returns. You end up with just for the sake of it, let's say do 15 investments, five, basically lose all your money ish, five, maybe give you back your money. And this is approximations and five of them do well out of those five, the top two do exceptionally well. The top one, hopefully returns your, you know, your whole fund and more. 
let's say one to one and a half X, and then your second one makes up the rest of so that you're about a two X just on those two. And then the rest, you know, get you to three and above. And that's kind of the, that, you know, it doesn't really matter what you do. That's where you, that's where you end up. And so that, that does factor into every investment. And that's where valuation does play. And it's like, it's sometimes people will say, well, you know, if it's the best company, like, shouldn't you just pay whatever, you know, it is what it is. Cause if you don't, then the reality is there's so many ways to exit and there's so many things between now and yeah, sure. If it becomes a $5 billion company, I wouldn't have cared if I put it paid 20 or 10 or 30, but what if like it exits for 200 million because the founders get a great offer a little early and they're first time or second time founders. And they're like, there's a lot of money for me and they, they want to take it and they do. Well, then it's going to make a difference if I pay 10 yeah. or 20 and that's a great outcome. Right. So yeah, it's not that clear cut. Yeah. Have you, uh, you've been at uh, Mr. for three years. Have you had investments or situations where you write that check and then maybe a month or two in you go, okay, I'm, I'm having second thoughts now. No, no, it, it luckily hasn't, hasn't happened. Obviously some have performed much better than others. And, and in some cases like upside surprise and in some cases downside surprise, but so far, luckily none where I was like, I, I wouldn't have given what I knew then I wouldn't have done that. Yeah. And last question on this, what do you think of startup valuations now, especially because we're seeing a lot of companies, there have been some high profile examples already of companies that are that have no profits, no earnings, and they cannot raise more money because money is becoming more tight. Do you think we're going to see a lot of down rounds and a lot of busts? What I feel is last year, if you were sexy in any way, you could just go out with basically like if this is the next round, then you just raise that now. Like if the next round should be an A and 15 million, then that's what you're raising today and you get along with it. And near the end of the last year, I started to see a few examples where people kind of went out with that and I'm like, this is nuts. Like, And then they would come back being like, oh yeah, it didn't work. Like now we're, we're going to lower our, I think we're going to start seeing more of that. And so that's one of the things I'm like, cause it'll happen pretty often where I'll meet a founder. The story is very exciting. There's, I'm like really interested in it until they're like, oh yeah, and we're raising it you know, whatever, like we're pre-revenue raising at 25. And I'm like, okay, like, <laughs> let me know if, I mean, if you do it great. Otherwise, I guess I'll just stay on the sidelines for now and, and we'll keep chatting. And maybe, you know, down the road, you'll, cause you always have to think about like, you are trying to go from this. If you're raising at that, then the next one, you're trying to be like 50 plus. So you're trying to be like classic series A and you've got a long way to go <laughs> until you've like proven product market fit and you have any sort of scale. So maybe we'll see you in a year and I'll pay the same thing, but, but you'll be right. further along. Like we'll, we'll see, but that's what I think is going to happen is, is more and more founders will go out trying to raise like at this hyper aggressive amounts and, and valuations and have to kind of come back and say, okay, this is not really, I mean, some people will get it, but it, it won't happen as often. That's what, that's what it's feeling like now. But I mean, we'll, we'll see how it all plays out. It's hard to call. Yeah. Okay, let's finish up with the lightning round. This is where I, I say a word and you give me 10 or 15 seconds of your thoughts on it after I say it. And, uh, and we'll, we'll get some quick takes from, from Pablo here. What are your thoughts on the metaverse? I think it's exciting. Web3 is definitely an area that, that we're playing in, but not, not an area I'm going all in on. We actually have a colleague that is, so I'll, I'll leave that there for now. Remote work. Remote work is is here to stay. And, and especially as long as the, as long as the labor markets are tight, there's no doubt about it. You have to, you have to accept remote work as part of your, your organization in 10 years. We'll see how it plays out, but I think it's here to stay. Crypto. 
crypto is, uh, you know, <laughs> changed my mind on that every single day. But I wish I would have been more bullish on it earlier on, I guess is what I'll say there. You and me both. And last question, if you had to put all your money into one public company, which would it be and why? Oh, God. That's a really tough one. I would have to say all my money, man. That's serious. <laughs> you got to make a bet on a public company, on, on, on a company that we've all heard of. Yeah, it could, I mean, I'll just say this. I don't know that this would actually be where I put out my money, but but I do think that that Facebook is like ridiculously undervalued. Just just there's so much like heat on it because of all this ATT stuff and whatever. But I'll tell you this. I remember this day, 2014. I was looking at Apple. It was trading at 13 price to earnings ratio because Apple was dead because Steve Jobs was out because there was nothing left there. Well, that's yeah, they were wrong on that one. And and I don't know if you want to bet against Zuck. So I'll say that. That is an awesome answer, and I, I love the guts. I've heard, I mean, so far, who have, have asked that question too. I've, I get a lot of Google, a lot of Apple, which are which are good, great, you know, great answers. But I would say Facebook. I totally agree with you. I, I'm I've been holding my shares now for five years, haven't sold once, and I'm buying more now. You know, I think I think yeah. that the best days are ahead. That's right, Pablo. Thanks so much for joining. Uh, listen to the Product Market Fit Show, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, leave a rating or review on Apple or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps other people find the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right. We'll talk to you guys next time.